Well, this is Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. I am Jim Grant, and uh, with me, as uh, per usual, Eric Whitehead at the control panel, and uh, the great Evan Lorenz, deputy editor of Grant's, and uh, Fabiano Santin, who is uh, uh, first vice president in charge of most emerging topics, a little bit of soft bank, railroads, eclectic coverage, Fabiano. And uh, we're all kind of back from vacation. Evan, um, do you know what, uh, uh, doesn't Eric have a special post-vacation glow? It does. He, he looks positively red and glowing, just like yeah. the communist flag. Well, you know, uh, he took the family uh, to Yemen uh, for three weeks. Uh, the kids loved it, especially. They took a little side trip to the Gaza Strip. It was a, I think it was a special moment for the family, Whitehead. I talked to his sons when they got back. They said the trip was a bomb. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. Oh, I have a story. I, I was uh, on the, uh, the Amtrak yesterday on the Acela, and I was going to Washington to uh, give a talk about, uh, this is an ad, my new book, The Life and Times of Walter Badgett, on sale now, W.W. Norton & Company, Badgett being the muse of Central Bank. Anyway, uh, I was on the train, and uh, I was getting off, and these two passengers ahead of me looked at me almost reverentially. They said, we so love your work, and you can imagine what that's like if you're, you know, a value investor and a gold guy in this particular phase of our finances. So I beamed back at them and they said, would you mind taking a selfie? And I said, no, not at all. I'd be happy to do that. This is one of the costs of celebrity. So they got out their phones and they took us and they said, thank you, Mr. Nye. And I said, wait a second. <laughs> they thought I was Bill Nye the science guy just because, fine, old guys wear bow ties. That's, but I am not Bill Nye, the science guy. I am, uh, well, I'm not, I'm not, no. It was, it was a, little, a little embarrassing because then I had to, you know, God, I, anyway, here we are. And uh, what brings us here is, uh, is interest rates such as they are. Evan, will you please give us a little overview on what the week has brought so far in interest rates? It's, you'll, uh, people, you would not believe this. Go ahead, Evan. Yeah, so interest rates actually jumped up high enough to observe, which as our publication observes them is something we, we well, like. Well, it's good for business. Yeah, starting on Monday, we, we saw something unusual. Repo, which is a, a short-term form of lending, usually overnight and usually secured by the, the safest collateral, usually treasury securities, jumped up um, by, what was it, like 80 or 100 basis points on Monday. Then it jumped up almost to 10% on Tuesday, which is an extraordinarily high rate when the 10-year treasury yields less than 2% uh, when bank NIMS are sinking and short-term rates in general are below 2%. The most remarkable thing of all was why did banks not step in the market to arbitrage this away? Lending against a treasury uh, security for an overnight basis has to be one of the lowest risk, safest ways to lend. Yet we did not see banks step out in mass to actually arbitrage this seemingly grand opportunity to earn a near riskless rate of all return right. away. So I have, I have an analogy from yesteryear. Um, uh, about 40 years before you were born, Evan, and 50 years before you were born, there was uh, inflation in this country and, and uh, Jimmy Carter made do as best he could with the tools at hand. And uh, one of the tools that he should not have yanked from the toolkit was uh, gasoline rationing. You had to get in a queue to buy gasoline, depending on the number of your license plate ended in an even number. It was like Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, odd number of the opposite, you know, Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. And Sunday was just, uh, you know, it was open fire. Just, 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 it was, uh, you know, demolition derby, as I recall. Demolition derby to procure gasoline in the free market, or not quite free market. So thinking that when there was a so-called shortage, as there was a shortage of cash to buy or to lend, there must be some sort of regulatory snafu, no? Well, there, there was, in fact. Um, the New York Fed decided to actually step into the gap and actually provide repo financing to borrowers in order to uh, fund their treasury positions. So on Tuesday morning, they 
announced we're going to fund $75 billion in repo. And they announced due to technical snafu, we can't do it for the next hour. So as they say in sports, that wasn't a good look. Yeah. I mean, it seems like the button that uh, they used to print money got a little bit jammed from disuse. <laughs> well, you know, the... Uh... I think the the, uh, the more or less serious side of this is that you know there there is a, a widespread assumption the Fed's in charge, the Fed is competent, the Fed and its uh, counterparts and other advanced economies have the situation well in hand. The ECB, the Bank of Japan, even the Bank of England. But increasingly, it seems we are being at least invited to imagine that events rather control the central banks instead of the central banks supposedly controlling events. Yeah. So we've seen a spikes in repo and other short-term financing, although they almost exclusively happen at month and quarter end. And the reason why that is, is um, banks, in order to present a better financial picture at those times, trim back some of their um, lending in order to show, you know, lower assets, lower leverage, et cetera. What was surprising this time is it happened mid-month. It happened um, on the 16th on the Monday and for the rest of this week. Now, there were a few things the market knew in advance. It knew that September 15th is the time that people who file quarterly taxes pay their taxes. So there's a little less money there. There's a couple other small things here and there that affect liquidity, but nothing that should have caused rates to spike to 10%. Well, there, was a, there was a big treasury auction. There was a big treasury auction, but it, nothing was of right. the, a size or magnitude to cause the spike in rates. So the, the question before the House is, what caused interest rates to jump as high as they did? And why didn't banks step into arbitrage, which would seem to be a great low risk, high ROE opportunity? Well, I, I keep coming back to uh, to regulation. And uh, there is a, at least a temporary surfeit of treasuries. Perhaps if treasuries yielded more, there would have been greater demand for them away from the trading desks of the primary dealers. No, That is true. But overnight repo at one point, you could have lent against a treasury security and got a 10% you know, yield. Why didn't uh, truckers bring in gasoline? Lane in 1970, whatever it was, to, to uh, exploit the difference. Well, they couldn't because of, uh, of rules then in place. But the uh, uh, One of the big changes in the uh, short-term funding market since the financial crisis of now 12 time flies yeah. is the end of, uh, of a functioning federal funds market. The federal funds market is moribund. It's like one of these old line newspapers that is a shell or a husk of itself. That's the federal funds market. But the federal funds market operated in the price mechanism. The Fed would respond to price signals from the market in dollars conducted uh, among and between banks. And now with uh, interest on excess reserves fixed, the price mechanism in the short-term funding market, as in the longer dated bond market, especially in Europe, has been absolutely unplugged. Well, the, the Fed funds market is kind of a peculiar market for the Fed to target. Prior to QE, there was roughly like maybe 60 to $80 billion in excess reserves in the system. And banks were short reserves go off and borrow those, you know, excess reserves from other banks in order to meet the regulatory requirements. Now, even though we've had quantitative tightening for a little bit of time, there's still well over a trillion dollars in excess reserves. Banks in aggregate don't need to borrow in the, the Fed funds market. What you have is certain entities like the um, Fannie and Freddie who have excess cash to park, but don't earn interest on excess reserves, will lend that money to foreign banks who can actually, due to lighter regulation, arbitrage that rate. But it, it's not a, a, a very robust market or a very big market. It's kind of like the gold certificates for the Federal Reserve banks. The Fed had its gold seized by the Treasury in 1935, but they still have these things called gold certificates. And they actually try to balance them at the end of each year. It serves no purpose other than it was written into a law a long time ago and they keep doing it and they just don't stop doing it. It doesn't really mean anything. Yeah, well, you know what? Uh, this observation about the Fed funds market 
and having shrunk so drastically. And about uh, repo being such a small percentage of the market in floating government debt, these uh, come to us uh, from the courtesy of the, uh, the, the deep statistical information bank of uh, Bianco Research and uh, Arbor Trading, right? And uh, why, don't, why don't, let's get Jimmy Bianchi on the phone. What do you say? Should we call him up? Sounds like a great idea. All right, let's do it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have on the phone right now Jim Bianco, who knows more about the rate of interest, whatever that rate of interest might be, than uh, than who? Than Jay Powell. Yeah, than Jay Powell himself. Jim. <laughs> Here's a question for you. So uh, I guess on uh, was, it, was it Monday that this uh, repo rate uh, fetched ten percent, or was that Tuesday? I forget the days do run together. I guess Tuesday. Why didn't a bank, say uh, the Morgan Bank, come in and make loans that would have reduced the rate of interest to uh, three-ish or two-ish? What was standing between an enterprising bank and that anomalous rate of interest? I think the simple answer is they didn't have the money to do it. Now, wait a minute. How could they not have the money? Let's put this into some perspective. That 10 years ago, there was this event, Jim, you might have remembered, called the Great Financial Crisis. And part of what drove that event was that banks and brokers levered themselves too much, famously Lehman Brothers. And it got kind of messy. And then after it got passed, we started passing rules like Dodd-Frank and then the Volcker rule. And then with the coverage ratios and Basel III, and all of these were meant to restrict the ability of banks to participate in these markets unless they had enough reserves and enough capital. The consequence of that is that the repo market today, relative to the size of the treasury market, is at a 40-year low. I noticed something else that uh, you pointed out to your clients and your readers, namely uh, that the federal funds market is at a 40-year low ebb in terms of size. And I gather the two of these things go hand in hand? Yes, they're closely related markets and that both of these markets don't have a lot of activity in them. So when people ask me things like when the effective rate is trading above the interest on excess reserves, why don't the banks just take those reserves and buy the effective because it's much higher? The answer is there's not enough of that market for them to do it to matter or even get the liquidity that they would like to. I mean, they in theory, I'd like to do it, but I need to do it in size because if you're the Morgan Bank, you're $4 trillion in assets. And if somebody comes to you with a $1 billion, two basis point idea, that's just not going to move the needle. And that's, I think, part of the reason that they don't do it because these markets are very, very small. Right? Jim, we were, we were talking earlier, Evan and, and I were talking about uh, how this reminds, at least me, it reminds me of a little bit of the gas lines, gasoline lines in the Carter administration that, uh, you know, market failure is often regulatory failure. And I'm wondering whether, uh, in your opinion, maybe something that the feds did is responsible for these disruptions and these anomalous interest rates of the past few days. I mean, does it go beyond the Volcker rule and Dodd-Frank and the other? Yeah, yeah. I think so. I mean, they regulated the market. Like, you beat some numbers and then get into it. Yeah, they regulated the market at the height of 2007. The repo market was 84% the size of the treasury market. And that was an all-time high, and that was probably too much. Today, it is 22% the size of the treasury market. That's a 40-year low in that middle. Additionally, they started playing with their balance sheet. So as they started to reduce the size of the treasury market, they were increasing their balance sheet. And so that was offsetting some of this problem. So they convinced themselves, hey, see, 
doesn't have any consequence in the funding market until 2018 when they started to reduce the size of their balance sheet. And then we started seeing signs that there was stress in the funding market. Repo moved above the funds rate, which usually doesn't trade. The Fed kept coming in and cutting the uh, effective rate five more basis points than uh, below the funds rate, then 10 basis points, 15, and then last week, 20. Every time Jay Powell asked about it, he always says, it's just a technical thing. You don't need to worry about it. Well, Jay, there's a problem here, and you're not addressing the problem. What you're doing is it's like if you were a golfer and you took your driver out and you hit the ball way over the green, uh, uh, way over the green, way over the tee, instead of saying, well, I need a different club. Well, let me back up. Let me back up from behind the car path and try teeing off from there. Let me back up to the next to the green and try and team off from there. And that seems to be what they were doing with the, with the effective rate. So, yeah, there was lots of market failures down the line. There was a market failure in that they overregulated. They didn't understand the impact of the balance sheet. Remember its famous line, it was like watching paint try? And it quite wasn't watching paint try. And it all culminated this past week when we had a serious need for uh, collateral and funding in the, in the market, and it wasn't there. We had a, a quarterly tax payment, which happens every quarter. We call it quarterly tax payment for a reason. We had a lot of securities come due because we had a government shutdown, and we reopened, and we issued a lot of securities very fast. Okay, that should have posed a bit of a challenge for the market, but it shouldn't have cratered the whole thing. It did because of the many market failures and the many missed warning signs by central bankers that led up to this week. Hey, Jim, uh, way back when, before the uh, great financial crisis, the um, uh, federal funds rate uh, was a price, and it was a signal for the Fed to add or withdraw reserves. It seemed to work okay in that regard. Interest rates were positive, and uh, you know there was a, a semblance of order in the marketplace, complete with a price mechanism called the funds rate. All right, that was then. And uh, excess reserves were minimal. No, I mean, they, uh, a few billion as opposed to 1.3 trillion. Why do we need 1.3 trillion of excess reserves now? And why do so many people call that inadequate? Well, I think, the, first of all, we, in theory, we don't need 1.3 trillion of excess reserves. I think the reason they call it inadequate is because in the prior regime, prior to the financial crisis, before Dodd-Frank in this myriad of rules, there would have been more than enough reserves. But now we say, here's Basel III, you cannot leverage yourself too much. Here's the liquidity coverage ratios, you need to set aside some more reserves. Here's Dodd-Frank, here's the Volcker rule, more restrictions, more restrictions. And therefore, they've set up a system now that, yes, in theory, $1.3 trillion of excess reserves sounds like a horribly large number, but given the regulations we have, it actually isn't anymore, and that we need to kind of address that issue. I do think the best way to address that issue is to address it with, um, with rolling back regulation, but I'm not holding my breath that that will help happen. So the other way to address it is to increase reserves, which is a fancy way of saying the Fed needs to do some form of QE increase their balance sheet one more time. Well, doesn't doesn't this facilitate the uh shall we call it uh, incontinent state of our fiscal affairs. The Fed is out there bidding for securities as the government issues them hand over fist. Isn't the Fed increasingly a, a complicit in, uh, in these immense uh, boom time budget deficits? Not only are they complicit, but they're actively cheering for it. And not only the Fed, but all central banks. The, the, the fancy word they use is fiscal. We need fiscal stimulus, which is a way to say that we want large budget deficit spending. They actively ask for it. And so, yeah, not only are they complicit, but it's exactly 
exactly what they want. Well, it's a good thing, Jim Bianco, the deficits don't matter because if they did, it would be terrifying. Exactly. Um, you know, if the deficits did matter, we wouldn't be in this, uh, we wouldn't be in this position that we are in now. Again, the, you know, Paul, the, the uh, fund, sorry. I was going to say the funding markets are too small, large, and no less reason than we have been running large deficits and we've been piling on new securities after new securities, and they've just run away from the funding markets, which is what's causing this problem. Right. So the question might be, is is the funding market too small or is the collateral too large? um, It's probably a little bit of both, but trying to be a realist about it, the collateral is not going to go down. There's not going to be any religion in Washington to, to reduce the size and the scope of the lending. If we're running a budget deficit now about 4.5% of GDP. That is one of the largest non-recessionary budget deficits that we've ever run. Non-recessionary, non-war budget deficit that we've ever run. In a peacetime expansion, it's unheard of to see it this large. You know, uh, Paul Isaac, our mutual friend who uh, is a general partner of Arbiter Partners, made, a, I thought, a, a wonderfully, uh, the kind of simple point that you wish you'd thought of. And his point was that if Treasury Securities bore a rate of interest that an interested take away lockup savings kind of demand, there wouldn't be this pressure on the funding desks. Is it possible that uh, uh, these funding market crises are something about the mispricing of longer dated securities? Oh, I think there's no doubt that they that they are in that regard. When you push these yields down, and let's remember for bonds 101, the prices go up quite a bit. All you're really doing is inviting more and more speculators into your bubble. And then you're going to get people that borrow money to this and tend to be more short-term trading. Believe that in the treasury market, if you look at the average volume, the whole thing turns over about every 10 days. Uh, so there's a tremendous amount of trading that goes on. And interestingly, in all of securities markets, since the financial crisis, volumes are down quite a bit. Volumes are down in equities and volumes are down everywhere, except for treasury securities. Their volumes are equal to higher because we've encouraged a type of speculative class to play these securities because the investor class finds no value in it. Yeah. Hey, Jim Bianco, this has been terrific as always. Thank you. Uh, we will talk again when things get even more interesting. How's that? So probably tomorrow. Yes, exactly. I'll put you on the schedule for about tomorrow morning before lunch. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. With us today is Jonathan Tepper, who is a first-class thinker about markets, who was the author of The Myth of Capitalism, about which we'll hear more, and a founding partner and chief editor of Variant Perception, which is in the business of thinking differently. It's a very dicey line of work, Jonathan. I'm not sure I recommend it to younger people. Um, but uh, I don't know. Let's, let's, we're going to get around to interest rates in a moment. But, you know, everyone's talking. Everyone's got a theory about interest rates. God, I wish they'd stay off our turf, Evan. <laughs> Um, no, we were with interest rates when you can actually see them. And now that they're little tiny things, everyone wants in on the game. Nuts. I don't, I don't, I don't see why I should let them in. Uh, we're the interest rate observer, but we now need a magnifying glass to find out. Correct. Hey, Jonathan, tell us about, uh, uh, first of all, the, uh, uh, the thinking behind the title for those who have not read your excellent tome, The Method of Capitalism. It has to do, does it not, with the uh, reality as opposed to the perception of competition? Yes. November of last year called The Myth of Capitalism. And the title came from a quote by uh, Mikhail Kalecki, a Polish economist. And he said that while perfect competition, I said, was uh, useful at a preliminary stage in analyzing capitalism, he said it was largely a myth. And I thought that uh, unfortunately, a lot of our supposedly free market day 
uh, are very much mythical in the sense that, you know, we do have private property, which is one of the key elements of capitalism, but we don't have very much competition. And some of that is due to having very strong in, in incumbents, but mainly due to sort of lobbying laws and so, you know, right, of, of competition. It, it, the exaction of economic rent from big shots, no? But you know, exactly. it, this this seems to flow against, uh, I'm going to use a word now that is now uh, gaining a little bit of currency in the world, the narrative. This, the narrative now is that this is the age of raging winds of creative destruction, and that with the uh, advent of digital this and that nobody is safe, least of all the seemingly safe incumbents, and we can all name a few of those. We ourselves here at Grant's Interest Rate Observer rather resent the fact there's so much competition in journalism. Fellas, am I right Nobody wants story? to be disrupted. No. And especially when the price is F-R-E-E. -E. I think it's most unfair. Evan, you concur? I, I prefer getting paid, and yeah. Eric, they shouldn't be doing what they... Yeah, right. So, Jonathan, what about this narrative of all this uh, uh, Schumpeterian creative discussion? You say, I gather that it is uh, not the fact of the matter. Well, clearly not every industry has become increasingly concentrated. Some industries are fairly unconcentrated, but the overall trend uh, in the market uh, in the United States has been towards concentration. Um, there is an excellent paper um, written by Gustavo Grillon and uh, two colleagues on the Say that. Rise Lead author's name again, Jonathan. Oh, uh, Gustavo Grullon, G-R-U-L-L-O-N, and he wrote that with uh, Yelena Larkin and Ronnie Mikhaili. Um, it's a fantastic paper, and I cite it in the book. And so there he does go through and shows that in about two-thirds of industries, you've seen an increase in concentration. So while, you know, there are very competitive industries, you know, and those are, for example, like, you know, the restaurant industry, right, right. Uh, a lot of the re retail industry. But if you're looking at it, you know, you now have four airlines in the U.S., you have uh, four railways. In the, uh, when you look at insurance markets, um, those are now basically monopolies and duopolies at the local level. When you look at the hospital market in the U.S., 90% um, of urban hospital markets are highly concentrated. So, you know, I could go, and it, in fact, I do go in the book, industry by industry, pointing out the areas where there's low competition. Um, rating agencies, for example, um, are a duopoly by law, effectively. It's very difficult to get the um, NRSRO designation, which is the nationally recognized uh, Jonathan, rating organization. Uh, you, 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 in your book, you made the, the point that so much of the U.S. economy has become kind of cartelized or uh, become oligopolies or monopolized. Uh, and you also made the point that over the last decade, decade and a half, the single best investment strategy was to find one of these oligopolies or monopolies, invest in them, close your eyes and just make money. Right now, though, we're seeing a little bit of a, a pushback. Uh, I don't think Republicans and Democrats could actually agree that the sky's blue, but there's now bipartisan support to go after the likes of Amazon, Facebook, Google. There's a number of state attorneys general who are actually going after these companies. Do you think that there's enough of a populist pushback now to actually, I guess, change both the economic and the investment fortunes of these companies. So I, I think that the trend uh, or the pendulum uh, has gone sort of so far one way that it's now swinging back, and it's very clear that it's a bipartisan thing. You know, not everyone on, on the right uh, agrees. There are quite a lot of libertarians who don't don't like the government at all, and therefore, if the government's involved in antitrust, they don't like that either. But um, quite a lot of conservatives now are, are worried about it because they obviously think it's not very good for the economy overall and for uh, consumers and producers. Um, and the Democrats, uh, you know, for for their own reasons, uh, sometimes uh, similar, but also just disliking concentrations of power, don't like it. And they're coming together. So you, you had uh, hearings in the House being run by the Antitrust Caucus, uh, David Cicilline um, from Rhode Island. You have the candidate uh, Warren and Sanders. And then now, you Jonathan, have, is this if I may interrupt? Is this investable? So I think that uh, it, it probably is. Um, it, it, 
there, there are some sectors, I think, that are more likely to be uh, affected than others. I think that if you're looking at, for example, the, the hospital market, those have been getting more concentrated. Uh, there are draft bills in the House to try to break them up. If you're looking at the tech giant, there so a lot of the practices that uh, have been bad are being highlighted. I don't know that they're going to be broken up, but there certainly is going to be a change to the way that some of them behave. How about T-Mobile and Sprint? The state's attorneys general seem to be on a very different path than the U.S. Justice Department, which, of course, the outcome of that uh, controversy or that uh, legal issue might well be a most important thing for the common shares of uh, SoftBank. Uh, yes. So I do think that it's likely that that would be a, a prime target. Um, and I think that probably number one area where the political uh, change of wind might have an effect. And I think that the DOJ and the FTC broadly are completely captured by the sort of pro-merger, pro-monopoly camp. It's just a revolving door between K Street law firms and then the two uh, economic consulting groups that do all the research arguing that mergers are wonderful, which is uh, Charles Rivers Associates and Compass Lexicon. So I don't think the FTC and the DOJ actually will do anything remotely serious to fight uh, industrial concentration. But I do think that the pressure from uh, the legislature and attorneys general is where you'll actually see. Yeah. Um, of course, the trouble is the, the, fe- trouble is the feds have the A-bomb. Yes. Uh, uh, Jonathan, uh, so, so a year ago, you recommended your clients uh, get short cyclicals and industrials. Now, though, uh, what's your recommendation uh, for U.S. and Europe? I, I, I believe that you have one view on kind of the U.S. market, but if Europe really is bottoming, especially U.K. and France, does that mean you're more constructive on those equities? And kind of what's your view on, on the U.S. market? So Europe right now, I would say, is uh, broadly uh, hated and disliked when very talks to, to clients. No one calls up and says that they're interested in Europe, even Europeans. The, the European indices themselves are not extremely cheap. It tends to be because they're overweight utilities and financials, whereas like high-quality European stocks, you know, have comparable valuations to the but, US. Jonathan, if they're overweight, if they're overweight banks, which are absolutely at lows with respect to book value, how can they be over, how can they be exaggerated to the upside in valuation? Um, in, in Europe, most of the indices are heavily overweight banks and utilities, which is why the European indices have done so poorly relative to the U.S. So if you were looking at the ratio of the uh, U.S. to Europe, the U.S. stock market by far has been the star performer and European indices have done poorly. So some people look at the European indices and say, oh, Europe's what, very cheap compared to the U.S. Well, and Nestle is not cheap compared oh, to the U.S. Okay. LVMH is not cheap compared to the U.S. So if you start comparing apples to apples, Europe is broadly in line. Um, the big difference is that the uh, utilities and banking sector in the U.S. is not beat up. And, uh, you know, whereas in Europe, they, they very definitely are. And the European banks have been a disaster to invest in. You know, it, banks are highly uh, correlated to the leading economic indicators and leading liquidity indicators, particularly liquidity. So when liquidity is ample, banks do really well. When liquidity is very tight, they do poorly. And what we've seen is uh, an improvement in European narrow money and liquidity, which tends to lead to an improvement in, in bank stocks. So for the, the past few months, that's one thing that we've been writing about for, for clients. Jonathan, thank you. It's been great to talk to you. And uh, I wish you and Europe well. I, I also, <laughs> Britain too, right? Thank you. Well, one, one thing- uh, Pass my regards on uh, Europe. Uh, thank you. If if your listeners are interested in uh, negative interest rates and uh, gold and all that's happening in that complex, uh, we have research for them at variantperception.com slash gold, and uh, that goes a bit more into the negative rate discussion that we were having. Oh, but thank you for having me. You are entirely welcome, Jonathan. Thank you, Jonathan. Well, fortunately, there is no shortage of competition in, in luggage. 
and uh, away travel is an avatar of the, uh, of the dynamism of the luggage business. Now, away creates the thoughtful products designed uh, to change how you see the world. Uh, the perfect suitcase was job number one, crafted with features that make uh, travel more seamless. And now they offer a range of essentials that solve real travel problems. So uh, all you have to do is think about is, uh, is where you're headed next and who you're traveling with and why won't that person stop talking to you? Or if younger, why uh, that person insists on crying in the inopportune places? Because getting away, capital A, means getting more out of every trip to come. Now, here are some of the features. We have an interest rate-minded audience. Do we not, Eric? I think we do. Yes. And uh, so what you want is space to pack interest rates. And even though they're tiny these days, you still need some. Okay, so a lightweight and durable shell that's made to last for a lifetime of travel. Good. Lifetime. That's good. Lifetime. A 100-day trial that lets you try any away product on the road. Good. Let's see, four 360-degree spinner wheels guarantee a smooth ride. Well, smooth ride is something we wish we had in the world of interest rates, but I assure you, ladies and gentlemen, that descriptor does not apply to the uh, short-term portion of that market. Oh, yes, an optional ejectable battery to keep your phone charged. How about an ejectable travel partner? So you're traveling with like a tween? Yeah, excellent. Okay, ejectable. Good concept to bring with you. Now, this is the bigger carry-on. We, well, we, we, okay, we, we've got to be done. That. All right. So key features. Suitcases are designed to last a lifetime. 100-day trial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Free shipping. Oh, free shipping. You know, the Buffalo Bills, uh, parenthetically, offer free shipping. If you're a Buffalo Bills fan, and uh, you know they won a game because you got an email saying free shipping on Buffalo Bills paraphernalia. Fabulous, right? Uh, okay, so want to see for yourself, you can shop away, you can shop everything away at uh, their stores in New York, Austin, LA, San Francisco, Boston, Chicago, and London. And this, this Away product is, is, is fabulous. It's got, a, it's, got a, it's got a shell that you can't destroy even if you wanted to, uh, thoughtfully designed, keeps everything organized. That's good. Um, easy to carry up and down stairs because it's so lightweight. Excellent. All right. Okay. So special offer to listeners of our show, right? Yeah, it's the call to action part. Very important. Quote, for $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com slash grant and use promo code grant during checkout. For $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com grant and use promo code grant during checkout. Bang. Bang, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, is a journalese for exclamation. So uh, thank you, Away, and away we go. Hey, Jim Bianco, thank you. That was just terrific. And uh, Jonathan Tepper, thank you. Eric, uh, Evan, uh, Fabiano, Phil, and uh, hey, Jim, thank you. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it has been a pleasure to be with you, and we will speak to you again from the uh, current yield grants interest rate observer of the air. <laughs>